I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today to get to talk about some science. Thanks for coming. You are a geophysicist, right? Yes, I'm a geophysicist. What's What are the physics of rocks all about? What is a geophysicist? So I actually don't do anything got to do with the physics of rocks. Um, geophysics is really interesting in the sense that it is the physics of the Earth, and the Earth is very varied and very large, as we know. Um, so some people who are geophysicists look at seismology, so how the rocks in the Earth move, some people look at the composition of rocks. Some people look at mining in the ocean, like my friend Cara does. Um, some people look at volcanoes. And then I actually look at atmospheric dynamics of the Arctic. So physics is study of how like matter moves or how matter interacts with, each, with everything. Um, and it's more or less the building block of all science, in my opinion. And I love physics. I find it very interesting. And then the geo part just means Earth. And it can also mean other planets too. So some geophysicists will look at asteroids or will look at other planets as well. So it's a super varied field. And um, so I can't tell you much about rocks, but I can tell you about the atmosphere. Cool. You're an atmospheric physicist, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. That's really fun. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a very fun and very kind of dynamic field to be in, I would say. Yeah, dynamic. Dynamic, yes. <laughs> Now, what stage in your career are you at? I'm a master's student. So I started last September. So I'm nearly one into my master's, one year into my master's, which is kind of crazy to think about that I'm here almost a year. Um, but also when I think of all the things that I've done in a year, it kind of makes sense that I've been here for that period of time. But yeah, I did. I finished my undergrad last May and I just started here last September. Wonderful. What was your undergrad in? I did my undergrad in astrophysics, actually. So I used Ooh. to look at everything outside of Earth and then more focused to Earth. And I did that back home in Ireland. Um, and I decided to do geophysics for my master's. Well, first of all, I decided I wanted to do climate physics um, because my undergrad research was about exoplanets. So they're planets outside of our solar system. And while I loved that and found it really interesting, I kind of was sitting there analyzing my data and was thinking, why am I spending so much time thinking about other planets and other possible habitable worlds when we have our own world that we kind of need to do a little bit of help protecting? And um, my claim to fame is that I was on like the recycling committee when I was in primary school. So when I was eight, I'm not sure which grade that is here. And um, we had like a recycling committee in school where we'd make sure that the recycling bins were properly emptied. So I cared about climate change before it was cool. <laughs> so I think it kind of made sense that I wanted to go into like climate-based research. And then I, so when I decided that, I thought about where I wanted to go. Um, and I knew I wanted to do a master's outside of Europe, just to kind of see more of the world and to challenge myself and how grad school is structured in North America is quite different to where I'm from and I enjoyed that change of structure. And um, I didn't really want to go to America because I was kind of scared, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I found UBC and I found my supervisor and what research she was doing and it sounded very interesting and cool. So I reached out to her and one thing led to another and I ended up here, which was quite fun. That's wonderful. Yeah. Do you find that you're... Um research in astrophysics uh, helps your uh, atmospheric physics um, 
I, I really do think it does. I think especially like a physics degree really well equips you for any kind of qual quantitative research. Um, because it's got to do with looking at huge amounts of data sets and learning how to code and then also learning the maths and the fluid dynamics behind what you're doing, which really is the same for a lot of processes in both the Earth and in stars and in other planets. Um, and really the only difference is, is that the application that I'm looking at is more close to home and it's more tangible, which is really nice. So I can look at a map and I can say, that's the place where I'm studying, as opposed to thinking about a huge distance away of a planet that we think exists, but might not even exist because it could be a little blip on a graph. Um, but yeah, I think that they are quite linked. And I honestly think that's the way with a lot of, with a lot of Earth science. And that's my favorite thing so far about studying Earth science is how all processes on planet Earth are so connected to each other and like appreciating that connectedness. It's just super fun. Like I have friends who are researching very different topics to me, but when we get down to like the nitty gritty of the topic, it's often similar in some cases. And because really we're just thinking about how different processes on Earth interact with each other, which is quite cool and fun. That's one thing that I find really amazing with this, um, or I've found really amazing with this interview series. People will start off in one, branch of earth science and then veer off in a completely different branch as they hit a new uh, level yeah. in their career. And like you said, it's because the fundamentals are um, all the same. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been really fun. Also learning from the professors in our department, what they did their master's in, what they did their PhD in, what they did their postdoc in, mm -hmm. can often be very varied because you can apply the <coughs> skills that you're using and analyzing one topic to another topic, which is just very fun. And it's also really, nice to be surrounded by so many people who care so much about the earth mm -hmm. in the different ways that they care about it. Um, so kind of regardless of what you're researching, you will always have a fun conversation in the corridors here, which I really enjoy. And I have to say, I totally empathize with the idea of wanting to uh, have an impact with your work and your science, not just be purely uh, theoretical. There's certainly a, a value to purely theoretical work, but yeah, um, exactly. It takes a very special person to do that. Yes, I think, and I have I have some friends in my undergrad degree who are now studying like black holes or you know very specific general and special relativity. That is very interesting to research, and I applaud them for being able to do that to that level. But definitely for me, I wanted to study something that I felt as if even if it's only a tiny contribution, does help towards the greater good as well as me having a genuine understanding in it. I think that's very easy for all of us in our department because everything that we study has such huge impacts on both the people on the planet, um, which is quite fun. Absolutely. Now, you talked about why you shifted away from um, atmosphere, astrophysics, sorry. You're fine. <laughs> um, but why polar atmospheric science? Um, there, there aren't too many polar bears in Ireland. No, there, we have no polar bears. We have no bears, actually which has been really fun when I go on hikes here and I see a bear. It's like, ooh, they're actually real and they exist. <laughs> um, for me, it was that I wanted to study something that was different and very novel and something that I hadn't really studied before. And I was always fascinated by the idea of the poles and how kind of they are like other worlds. Like I haven't got to go to the Arctic yet. Hopefully I might get to go next summer. But from speaking with my supervisor and from other professors, they describe Antarctica and the Arctic as almost like being on another planet, which I think is super cool. Um, and I'm very interested in climate justice and how we can help people who are most affected by climate change. And the people of the Arctic are one of the most vulnerable groups to changes in the climate. Um, and I suppose I did always have like a genuine understanding and appreciation for how climate change is affecting different groups across the world. Um, but genuine 
I feel like I almost in some ways also then fell into polar climate science because it just really interested me and I kept looking into it and I realized that I was more interested in that than maybe oceanography or maybe another type of geophysics and that's kind of how it happened and um, it's really interesting and I think it's quite cool that a lot of people don't know a lot about the Arctic and Antarctica so we also as researchers know very little about how the atmosphere there actually works in terms of present day, let alone what we think it's going to look like in the future. And that's quite fun to work on a topic that is so unbelievably under-researched. And um, because I came from astrophysics, which is actually in some cases very, very well described, and we understand a lot of processes, mm. to the Western Canadian Arctic, where I specifically look at where there's very little research stations. And the research stations that we have, if an instrument breaks, it might be fixed for 10 years. So you're looking at a hugely limited amount of data and understanding, but it's also really fun to be part of that research community at this stage of my career, because I know that any kind of work that I do will genuinely contribute to the greater understanding of how the Arctic works. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of, that was it. I like what you said at the beginning, where you mentioned that uh, Arctic and Antarctic populations are most vulnerable to climate, climate change. Um, we're freaking out down here about how quickly our climate is changing. Uh, the forests are burning. Um, we've got heat waves and cold snaps that are unbelievable. And yet it's magnified many times over for people in the Arctic, uh, where the world's just changing dramatically overnight. Yeah, exactly. Um, so first of all, Antarctica doesn't have, the only people who are in Antarctica are researchers. Right. <laughs> but there are penguins. And <laughs> um, Antarctica isn't as severely affected, but the Arctic is suffering from this phenomenon called Arctic amplification. And um, so any change in the amount of heat on Earth is like amplified in the Arctic compared to the rest of the world. Um, and that's got to do with generally how just atmospheric transport works. And um, so it means that while most of the world has seen about a 1 to 1.5 degree increase in temperature from like pre-industrial, so 1850 to present, and um, the Arctic has seen some recent papers are saying a four degree increase. Oh my goodness. We used to say two, but now we're saying four, which is huge it's crazy and um, about a month ago in Tuktoyoktuk in the Northwest Territories which is a particular area that I look at the temperature there was 30 degrees Celsius yeah. and the mean summer temperature there is about 10. So that so when we have a heat wave in Vancouver and we're scared about it being 35 which is scary and it shouldn't be happening it's much worse when it happens up there especially in an environment that is mainly frozen most of the year that people rely on being able to travel over very very densely packed snow or ice it's quite scary so that's why I feel that when I'm upstairs and I'm coding away and I'm analyzing my data that hopefully what I'm doing will help contribute to the people who live there and also maybe hopefully in the future mean that we don't see as many 30 degrees Celsius days Ugh, there. 30 degrees is disgusting. It's, it's disgusting yeah it's you're all great. sticky and yeah, I don't, can't yeah. escape it <laughs> much less than the arctic. Yeah exactly because I guess they don't have AC up there. I imagine that they don't, <laughs> yeah. Now, you've hinted around this. Um, you mentioned that you specialize in the Western Arctic. Um, but what exactly are you looking at? Yeah, so I'm looking at how the climate of this region has changed from about 1950 to present day. And um, so specifically, I'm looking at how the moisture transport has been affected by an increase in temperature. So if you have warmer temperatures, you're going to have less snow because most of the precipitation falling is going to fall as rain. Um, and that means that there's also going to be more moisture in the air as well. And when you have more moisture in the air, you're then going to have more precipitation. And that's what we call like a positive feedback loop. So one thing leads on to another, that leads on to another. 
Um, and this overall increase in precipitation is causing huge changes to the ice, to the permafrost, which is frozen ground, and just generally the environment and the climate of that area. We don't fully know where these precipitation changes are coming from. So is it coming from the land or is it coming from the ocean? So my work is about trying to understand, map and model what those changes look like. And then kind of adjacent to that, because we have such few research stations in the Arctic, as I already mentioned, we generally, when we're looking at data, it's quite sparse, um, which means that we use a type of data called reanalysis products. Um, so what these are is what are modern climate and weather models, um, like what Roland Stoll's group do in our uh, department. Um, we can tell weather models what the weather is like today, and it will be able to tell us what it's probably going to be like tomorrow. And these models are really good. So we use these models and we input climate and weather measurements from like 1950 to present day and then that will output what we think the precipitation and temperature and humidity was like for specific regions in the past when we didn't have measurements for it so it means that if you think of a grid or a map and if you have like three dots on that grid where you have measurements you can then fill up that entire grid or that entire map with measurements and um, which means that it makes my research a little bit easier because instead of only having 10 stations to look at i now have the entire arctic however there are limitations with using this type of data. Um, if you think about it, if you have a line that has lots of points on it, and if you jo join the points, different people are going to join those points differently. Um, and different products, of different reanalysis products, so like different research groups make different ones, all different how they describe wind and temperature and precipitation. So what I'm looking at is comparing these two observations that were taken at stations to see how accurate they are which means then that when people who work in the climate modeling community are seeing was my climate model accurate and when they're comparing it to data sets they will know that the data set they're comparing it to is actually representative of present data. So yeah that was a little bit complicated um, but more or less what I do is I compare data sets to see if they're telling the story that's correct about what the climate is like in this area um, and overall that contributes to our general greater understanding and also to people who work in modeling. And when you say there aren't many um, monitoring stations, how many are we talking about over what Off area? the top of my head, I don't actually know, but it's it's limited. It's probably like less than 50 in an area that is huge. And also Western Canada is worse than, for instance, like Northern Siberia or even often we'll have less. Yeah, we'll have less than like Northern European countries as well. And um, so it's particularly undersampled, which means that it's just difficult when we're trying to say what the climate's going to be like in 50 years when we hardly know what it's like today. And when you say a huge area, do you mean like uh, Northwest Territories? As, as in the entirety of like Northern Canada. Oh, yeah. none of it too? Yeah. Oh, all, like, good heavens. Oh yeah, not, not a huge amount, which isn't great. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that because I think people know, there's some statistic, isn't it, that we don't know about 90% of the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, it's similar for the Arctic. I need to get that statistic down so I can tell people that that can be like a snappy response. Um, and that's also why it's really fun and really interesting because I'm studying something that has so many questions. Like often I'll have a question in my research and I'll go to the literature and the literature also won't know the answer to it, which is fun. And then also it can be slightly frustrating at times when I'm only a year into learning this thing and I've already gotten to the stage where I have questions that haven't been answered. But then it also means that I have lots of research, which is fun. When I was a kid, uh, thinking about going into science, I ultimately decided against it because I thought all the major science has already been discovered. All yeah. that's left is to quibble over uh, the scraps. But um, 
No, there's still lots oh, we don't know about. So much that we don't know about, yeah, which is very fun. And I think honestly, as time goes on, we will just have more and more questions as we understand more what the climate is like, which is just really interesting. And more just, we, yeah. Yeah, it's just really fun being able to contribute to our understanding of our planet. The more we know, the more we know we didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. the more we know what was what was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is super fun. Do you do any field work or is it all lab work? It's currently all lab work. Um, I would love to go on field work at some stage, um, but it's very, first of all, it's like quite expensive to send people, especially mm-hmm. to the Arctic on field work. But secondly, there's a lot of carbon emissions associated with that. So you really have to be sure when you're going on field work that you really, really, really need to go. Um, and for a master's project like mine, that's not 100% necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully I will get to go at some stage, but at this point I haven't gone yet. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're conscious of, you know, the, your carbon footprint with your research. Too. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that people, you know, we've I think we've heard recently about certain celebrities who take like 10 minute long private jets. Mm-hmm. And I would never say people shouldn't go on fieldwork because unfortunately there are other individuals in the world who have huge, much larger carbon footprints than us who are trying to study climate change. But I do think it's an important thing to factor in when we're thinking about decisions about whether or not we should or shouldn't go. Um, on field work but no I, I honestly I'm pretty lucky like all the data that I need is there and um, which makes that I don't have to go live in a tent in the Arctic for three months but then also chatting to friends who've done that you know it's fun this too. <laughs> One thing I find uh, whether you do field work or not is when you're doing your job just the most amazing things can happen that you didn't expect. Um, yeah. Do you have any fun workplace stories you'd care to share? Um, I don't so I can't I can't think of any fun ones off the top of my head. You were telling me at the beginning of this interview uh, when I warned you that um, the room we're interviewing in right now is uh, controlled by a or the lights are controlled by a motion sensor, and um, if I don't move often enough, we will be plunged into darkness. Yeah. Uh, does that ring a bell? <laughs> yes, that does. And actually, now that I think about it, I um I was an instructor like this term and last term where I was um, teaching like thirty first year students, and I was like a general introduction first year lab um, and one day I was standing on top of a table trying to fix um, a piece of equipment that tries to shift topography with sound it's actually outside in the PME at the minute if anyone's around and wants to look at it it's really fun I would recommend playing with it so I was standing on a table not being very safe with like 30 first year students around me and I was trying to fix the thing and then that was the day that we had it, what we thought was a gas leak in our in our building but it wasn't actually a gas leak but somebody came in and he said something like, get your people out. And it was like as if we were in a war zone. And we had to, we had to like, rush all the students out and make sure that they were all there. And then it was just quite dramatic. And it was the only time that I'd ever, I guess, would have been on stage and standing on a table. And that was the time when somebody came in and told me that I had to, like, you know, get all my students out. And anyway, it ended up not being a gas leak and it was fine. So I guess that maybe is a fun story that I've had. And um, I definitely have fun stories from teaching. But in terms of my day-to-day work, not, not as much. <laughs> But every now and then you'll be so engrossed in your work that uh, you won't move for hours and yeah. um, you'll be plunged into darkness. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the lights in our department are on the motion sensor, which is good, which means that they aren't turned on when people aren't there. Um, but yeah, it does mean that sometimes we're in the office and we have to do a little dance every hour or so to make sure that the lights stay on. <laughs> which is also good. It makes you uh, get the blood moving. Exactly, exactly. And honestly, that doesn't happen too much. Usually I'm up chatting to people who I'm inside because I'm quite chatty. So... <laughs> That's usually not too much of a problem, but yeah, it's funny when it happens. You're clearly really passionate about your work, um, but what's the best part about your work? 
I think so much of my work is unbelievable. I think that I'm like unbelievably lucky that I get to spend my time researching something that I care so much about and that I know has positive impacts on the world. And I also, my favorite thing is, is that I get to hang out with and be friends with other people who share similar levels of passion and dedication to their work, which is just very inspiring and very fun to be around. Um, and I just, every day, I'm just so grateful that I get to like live and work in this place that has given me the opportunity, it's really fun. And in terms of day to day, when I make a graph and when it gives me results that make sense and that I can understand and that I can send to my supervisor and say, look at this cool graph, look at what it did. Um, there's nothing, it's funny how much satisfaction you get from running code and it running for maybe 10 minutes and then you getting a figure out of it and it being a really good figure. And it just, it makes me very happy. Um, I'm quite an artistic person, so I, I often spend an hour like deciding the colours of my figures, which, you know, potentially I could use my time a little bit better. Um, but it, I do really enjoy it when I get to make cool figures that help describe climate. And it's just, yeah, it's just, in my opinion, like the perfect job. And also, I really enjoy teaching and getting to interact with students and getting to pass, I guess, my dedication and passion on to them. So I'm also, that's another part of my work that I really enjoy, is just getting to work with other people who also care as much about the earth and climate change as I do. There's nothing like that feeling when Excel does exactly what you wanted and you've beaten the machine. Exactly, exactly, yeah, it's super fun. And of course, all that other lovely stuff, you know, yeah. societal <laughs> impacts and all that, but yeah. oh, but beat Excel. It is, no, it, it's very satisfying when software does what you want it to do. There's always funny memes where people are giving out about their code and it's not working. It's like the code is actually doing exactly what you asked it to do. You just may not have done it properly. And it's definitely humbling, I would say. Mm -hmm. But yeah. <laughs> if you ever walk by my office and I'm just muttering, you know, die and I hate you, it means I'm working with Excel at the yeah, moment. Yeah, <laughs> I actually don't use Excel. I actually read oh, test in the entirety of Microsoft Office. I find it actually quite difficult to use. <laughs> <laughs> So I can I can I can agree and can, can empathize with your hatred of Excel. <laughs> now um, that brings me to my next question. Uh, not everything is sunshine and roses. Uh, what's the worst part about your work, or, or the most challenging part? I think the challenging part is is if you've worked on something for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and you think that you're going in one direction, and then you realize that you actually had completely the wrong idea or what you're doing actually didn't make sense. And you only realize in hindsight that you have to go through the process to get to that stage. Mm -hmm. Or if you're thinking about a method and you do that method, and then you realize that it wasn't actually doing what you wanted to show, that can be quite frustrating at times. And I think that you just need to be patient and also need to not get too annoyed at yourself because the work that you did will probably benefit you in the long run, but it can be very frustrating. And um, I would say that's probably the most difficult thing. And then also if, you're trying to sometimes like access a data set where you know the measurement that you're trying to look at. And again, I don't take any of my own measurements. All of the data I use has been taken by other people or models have made it. Um, and I know what variable I want to look at, but I can't find it somewhere. That can also be a little bit difficult at times. And I guess that that is the, the good thing and the bad thing about using the type of data that I use um, when I haven't taken it myself. I would say, but honestly, 90% of the time, it's all, it's all pretty great. <laughs> and I think with any kind of work and especially research, you just have to be resilient and just have to be able to push through and things get a little bit frustrating. Um, and I think that I've 
learned that resilience quite well through also admiring and learning from the older graduate students in our department. So the PhD students who are in like year four and five and six and seeing that they've been able to manage to do some really cool work and to power through when things get annoying. Um, and honestly, that kind of like makes it a little bit easier when you're three months in and you can't figure out why your code isn't working. <laughs> That's a very eloquent way of saying uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. Far less glib though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your work or studies? Yeah, so I'm a woman and I'm also queer as well. And I think that, um, honestly, being part of minorities, I think has actually helped me in being a good scientist because I know what it feels like to feel like not represented. And I know what it feels like when you do feel represented and that feels really nice. And um, I think in terms of being a woman, like in my undergrad degree, I think I had two lecturers in four years who were female. So it was very special coming here. And first of all, my supervisor is a woman and she's amazing and she's phenomenal and very inspiring to work with. And her name is Dr. Annie Sorcy. So it's been amazing to learn from her. And then also, I think 50% of the graduate students in our department are female too, which is just really nice that I'm just surrounded by a lot of very smart and powerful women. Um, and then I think in terms of other things, like being aware of what it feels like to feel different and to not feel in feel as if you fit in means that I'm aware of like when other people aren't present too. And I think that my privileges outweigh the minorities that I'm a part of. Like I'm white, I'm able-bodied, I'm middle class. That all definitely helps me much more than the fact that I'm gay and a woman, um, I think. And honestly, I think that earth science is really, really good when it comes to representation of women, but like our racial diversity is quite poor. Um, and I think coming from a more mathematical or astrophysics background, there would have been a more racial diversity from where I came from to where I am now. Um, and I'd like to think that I act on these, I guess, things that I notice. <laughs> and so I'm part of like the EDI committee in our department. And also me and two friends founded our like women and diversity in STEM society at my undergrad degree too. And then this year I was like mentoring some high school students who are from underrepresented groups. So I think it's important when you're part of a minority that you acknowledge what that's like and then you also work to make science more inclusive and more open and i think as well like there's a huge privilege in being able to spend your 20s running around and analyzing data and thinking about climate change and i'm very very lucky that i can do this and that i wasn't necessarily super worried about going straight into a job that would pay me very very well mm. and some of my most intelligent friends i have are not doing grad school for those reasons and I think that that's something that people need to be aware of is like the privilege that comes with being able to be a researcher um, is quite important to acknowledge. And I think that at my stage, I have less agency in changing that. But if I do stay in academia, I hope to help make that a little bit more accessible, a little bit more open. And I think especially with earth science, it's all, I think I would have studied geology at undergrad if I knew what it was, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't, I didn't really know what it was. Um, and I think that we can do better in terms of just telling the world about what earth science actually is and that it's not just field work and hiking all the time, which I personally love. I love hiking and I love being outside, but you can also be an amazing earth scientist and be somebody who doesn't actually like the outdoors and who just really, really likes maths, which people generally associate with physics or with engineering, I think. Um, and I think when we have more diverse groups, we get better conversations and better questions because our backgrounds influence I guess, our experience as a researcher. Um, so yeah, 
honestly, I think it's a good thing, but I'm lucky that I'm able to say that. It's very important to not only have uh, diverse personal backgrounds and researchers, but also diverse skill sets. Yeah, exactly. Because what you might do in half an hour might take me months. And then also what you do in half an hour would probably take me months too. Exactly. And I think that it's, I think it's really important to be able to harness, I think as a, someone who's a leader, is to be able to harness the qualities in different people within your team or within your group for everyone to feel valued and then also to get kind of like the best outcome or like the best science. And we can only do the best science when we have a diverse range of people who know a lot of things and who are from a lot of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. If you have the same background, why bring more people along? Exactly, exactly, yeah. If they're just clones of you. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like earth science is a really open and welcoming field or is it more closed off and insular? You kind of touched on this, but... I have found it, like for me personally, I find it to be very opening. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite interesting within our department that most of the students who are studying anything climate related, we all came from physics or engineering backgrounds. So I arrived here and I'd never taken a single earth science class. And first of all, I was teaching an earth science class and I was also taking three other ones. That was quite fun. Um, and I found from an academic point of view for it to be very open. But I think that's because I already had the shoe in the door because I already had an undergrad degree. And I, I'm not sure if it is always seen as being as open as it actually genuinely is, particularly maybe for like high school students going into college. Um, I think that we that it could be, we could maybe do a little bit better job to show people that we're actually all very friendly and very kind. And like, as I've said, every single professor in this department just loves what they do so much. I think we need to show that a little bit more to the world maybe than we do. But um, and definitely like the polar science community is unbelievably collaborative. Mm-hmm. Mainly because as I said, we have such few researchers looking at our questions and such few instruments also looking at our questions that it means that all of our work is very collaborative, which is very fun and very nice to be a part of such like a dynamic and collaborative group, I would say. And of course it's just so beautiful. Um how can you be in a bad mood? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you said you arrived here about a year ago, so that would have been halfway through the pandemic, um, yes. right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has that impacted your work, or has it? So I completed my third year and fourth year of university during the pandemic, and I think that that was probably affected more than by the time I moved here, the pandemic was a little bit more kind of Cam and honestly, I just felt more sorry for the people who are in like first or second year of university because thirty years when you're meant to be having more fun and enjoying your enjoying yourself, and they weren't able to do that. Um, for my final year of research, we were actually meant to go to an observatory in Tenerife, and we couldn't do that because of COVID. So I guess that was a, quite a large thing that affected me in terms of my time since coming here. Um, aside from having to be online a little bit and having to use Zoom, it hasn't really affected me too much, which I've been quite lucky about. Um, but I do think it has been, yeah, teaching online was probably quite difficult and that's something that I didn't enjoy as much as, much as getting to interact with students face-to-face, definitely. Um, but yeah, I think we really just tried our best and just did what we could. Um, I'm very happy that we're back to in-person and hopefully it'll stay like that, but we never know. Exactly. <laughs> I think we just have to appreciate when we can be in-person and just hope that people stay safe and it stays like this. This is something I noticed with climate scientists. You study something so uh, doom and gloom, and yet you always have such a uh, bright and sunny uh, disposition. I don't know how you keep up the moods. I honestly think, and I think this is similar for other people who I speak to who do climate related, 
is that everybody is aware anyway of climate change. And for me, any like being able to study it just means that I'm actually more informed now. Um, which makes me not that it makes me less scared, but now at least I can like answer more people's questions, which I enjoy. Um, and yeah, it can be a little bit scary sometimes when you look at graphs and they're all sloping upwards. Um, but I do also think that even if I wasn't doing this kind of work, I would be acutely aware of what was going on. So knowing about it doesn't really affect my day to day, I guess, like happy demeanor. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, if anyone's listening right now and wants to become a climate scientist or uh, follow in your footsteps, um, what experience or courses um, or just background would you suggest they pursue? Uh, should they go the route that you took or or is there a more direct route? I honestly think people can can kind of have fun in their undergrad degree and can study something that genuinely interests them. I would say if you want to be a scientist, you probably have to study a STEM subject. So it's like science, technology, engineering or maths. It would be probably a little bit difficult if you came from a non-STEM background. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the most important thing with an undergrad degree is just learning how to learn and enjoying your time and learning about yourself and learning how to be dedicated and motivated and working through problems. And I think in terms of specific courses, knowing maths is very important, knowing basic chemistry, biology. For my particular field, I'm a physicist, so I'm going to tell you that you need to study some physics. Um, but you can also do earth science that isn't physics related at all, or you can do earth science that's very biology heavy or very chemistry heavy or very mathematical, and it really can just depend. Um, and then I think also having a good grasp of statistical analysis and coding is also very important. I never forget in second year of undergrad when we learned how to code, and I sat there and I chatted to my friend beside me and I said, I hate coding, I never want to learn how to do this. We oh, will nice. never use it. Which is very funny because astrophysics is entirely coding, because we can't go and touch the sun <laughs> and climate science and all like all science is just data analysis in kind of like a funny box or like a funny nicely packed up way I would say and and all the, and every single day I code now and I love it and I really enjoy it because I figured out how to do it and I realized it's just making computers do the maths for you um, but I would say that that would be an important course to to do and which was the course that turned your future um, that is a very tough question. I think since coming here, I did a really good course, which was the physics of the Earth and other planets, and um, Professor Mark Jelinek. And that one is using physics to describe everything you want to describe, more or less. And um, so we did a huge range of topics, varying Earth science and space related, which just taught us different ways, like how to think as a scientist and how to approach papers and how to approach problems which I found really interesting. Um, and then another course that I took here was on the IPCC report, which is the general report that they make every couple of years about climate change. And that was a good intro in terms of like the specific ways that climate change is affecting different parts of the earth. And then I think from an undergrad point of view, um, probably like mathematical methods, physical methods was pretty important. And for people who don't know what that is, that's again, using maths to describe physical processes and learning how to make those connections, I would say. Excellent. I should have taken that whenever I try to add two plus two, <laughs> I get purple. <laughs> yeah. Now you are, um, as I mentioned before, uh, very inspiring. Um, you approach a very uh, scary topic with uh, light and sunshine. Um, who inspired you while you were studying? Or who inspires you? Well, thank you, first of all. 
Um, I'd say I've been very lucky to have a lot of people to inspire me. My high school science teachers were amazing and they were all phenomenal and they pushed me to continue. Not that I needed pushing to continue in science, but they definitely helped encourage me to do it. Um, and then I would say in my undergrad degree, the two female professors that I did have were also phenomenal and were also great too. And then I would say now it's the people who I meet, like the other graduate students in our department, I find unbelievably inspiring. Like I've already spoken a little bit about the older graduate students in our department, but they are really great to talk to. And it's great to kind of chat to people who've been through the same process as you and know that they've come out the other side and they still love their topic and they still love their research, which is really nice and really fun. Um, and then I also take a lot of inspiration from, yeah, a lot of the professors who I work with who are just very dedicated to their, to their work. And I think people who've shown that you can have like a work-life balance and that you can also be a really good teacher and you can also be a good researcher too. Because sometimes people say that scientists can only be good at one thing. And definitely, I don't want to be seen like that. And I take a lot of inspiration from people who also aren't like that either. Um, which has been very fun. But yeah, there's lots of inspiring people surrounding us here every day, which are very good to learn from. I always say we've got some of the best grad students. And, oh, um, nice. yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing how you don't even need to tell them to be mentors. Uh, they they would do it with our, yeah. even if you told them not to. Yes, no, they're all, they're all phenomenal. They're, they're really, really great. You were just beginning your career. Um, I want you to look to the long term. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire? That is also a diff lots of difficult questions today, Daniel. <laughs> I would say, um, first of all, I would want for whatever my scientific output to be for that, to have made like meaningful change to people who live in the Arctic, um, who are most affected by climate change. Um, I think that that's really important. And I would also like for whatever I do discover to be useful for the people who work in climate modeling and work in Arctic research. So that's kind of the science side of it. And then in terms of more professional but personal would be that I have a legacy as being a good teacher and someone who people can trust or can come to with, I guess, issues or if they're not understanding a topic that they feel that I'm open enough that they can ask me questions. And um, one thing that I never understand, understood in my undergrad was when lecturers would have really harsh deadlines. They'd say, if it's one minute late, I can't grade it. And like, I understand it's difficult when you have a hundred papers to correct. And I understand that professors are very spread thinly at times, but until I cannot anymore, I, I always have like very lenient deadlines. Cause it's just, people have things going on that I don't know about. And I don't necessarily need to know what's going on unless you want to tell me, but I would like for you to be able to not be scared to hand in your lab report late. So that's that. And then I also would like to have a legacy that I also enjoyed my life outside of work. I think that's really important. Like I love cycling, I love biking, I love baking and cooking and drawing. And that's really important to me as well as being a good scientist. And I think, especially with our generation, it's important for us to have both and for both of them to be important. And I want to show that you can be a very good scientist and also have a life independent of your work. I think that's important. I've heard that before from some of our profs uh, that the upcoming generation really does value the work-life balance. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that that's one of our generational legacies. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think especially as researchers, when generally we have to move around a lot and based on where the research is being done, that I think that it's important to be able to land on your feet in a new place. And often that's related to having good hobbies and a good like support network, which is more difficult to have if you're working like 80 hours a week or something like that. 
that. And that's definitely something. While I adore my work and I adore my science, I don't love it that much. I also like being able to sleep and be able to spend time outside. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Diversity of interests. Yeah, yeah, which I think is important. My final question. Um, our world is uh, changing at lightning speed, not just in terms of climate, but also how we approach uh, various fields of study and industry. Uh, and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time they retire. I, I expect that by the time you, you retire, you're going to look back at what you're doing right now and think, oh, that was adorable. Um, <laughs> and be like you're working on something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see your field going and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming down the pipe? Yeah, I think it will probably become more interdisciplinary as we go on and especially because, as I mentioned, the climate system is so interconnected that often it doesn't really make sense that we have oceanographers separate from geophysicists, separate from atmospheric scientists, because really we're all trying to understand the same chunk of Earth <laughs> and just in a different way. Um, and I also think we'll probably turn to it more of like a big, in air quotes, like big data approach um, where we use more machine learning methods as opposed to us um, doing all of like the hard work in that sense. Not that that doesn't make it hard work. Um, but I would think in terms of forecasting for that from someone who's going into this field, I think it's just important to be adaptive and to be able to work with people from different academic backgrounds. And, and I think honestly, just having a strong founding in both data analysis, coding, and whichever specific science you're good at is important. But then also if you have the opportunity to take courses outside of your specific field. So if you're a chemist, take a physics course, if you're a biologist, take a chemistry course, etc., just so that you have a more thorough understanding and you can treat the climate system more holistically than just the specific topic that you're very good at. But I could be completely wrong and maybe in the future we will become more sectioned off. But I kind of I don't think that that will happen. I think we'll become more interdisciplinary as it goes on. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, pick as many of the scientific low-hanging fruit as you can yeah. uh, before you struggle for the higher fruit. Exactly. And I think as well, especially climate related in the future, we need to be really conscious that what we're doing is reflected in policy change because there's no point us well, there is point in us doing this research for the for general like science, but there's no point in us doing this research and saying that this bad thing is going to happen and this has to fix it and then it not actually be fixed. And um, so I think if students have the opportunity to take some sort of like policy course would also be really important. And um, because often the students who are really good at policy and economics don't know enough about science, and the students who are really good at science don't know enough about how policy and economics work, and they're both very different and very important things that we can work together on. So if that becomes more interdisciplinary, that would be great too. Absolutely. <laughs> Even just um, public speaking and, and messaging. Yes, I've yes. I've seen like, friends who are taking an afternoon course and it's like night and day. Yeah, and I think being able to be a good science communicator is also really important. And I would like to see in the future science education to focus more on communication. Like, sorry, science education, yes, so like those of us in graduate school to be more aware of how to be better communicators, mm -hmm. especially when most of our funding is funded by like public money. It doesn't make a lot of sense that we do all of this research and then we don't actually tell the public, this is what we did, this is why it's important, and this is why you should care about it. Um, and I think a lot of scientific misinformation is as a result of those steps having like, links missing. And the people who are funding you aren't necessarily scientists themselves. Exactly. So if you throw your thesis at them, 
they might not give you that grant. Yeah, I don't think anyone would give you a grant for your thesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ruth, I've had a, an absolute delight talking with you today. Uh, is there anything I missed or is there anything you want to add before I let you go? I don't know. I don't think so. Just, yeah, thank you for this opportunity to get to chat about climate. I very much enjoy talking about my science. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing your experience and your stories and your enthusiasm and just your general demeanor. It's a lovely way to end the week. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.